Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. You are now on the Columbus-Boston series. I covered Columbus and Tampa in the first round. And before the show, we were both uh, talking about our various experiences, experiences, as they say, uh, in, in Ohio covering the Blue Jackets. Um, you and I had the same problem, which is that all of the parking garages around the arena all look the same, and you have to wander through them all to find your car. Yeah, Greg, I kind of have a, a bone to pick with you because – I am team Uber slash Lyft lately. I don't rent cars anymore. It just doesn't happen. And you have long preached the value of renting a car on the road. And I appreciate it. And you said, Columbus is a city you should do it in. So I did. And I rent a car. And they're out of small ones except for one little dinky one that doesn't even have the emergency button. And I swear, I kid you not, 20 minutes I was wandering around a parking garage wondering where my car was. And I realized that it was the one right next door. Now... For the record, I like to rent a car because it's a place that you can keep your stuff so I don't have to walk around with that tripod we have to have for those TV hits all the time. And two, because it's a great place to collect all of your fast food wrappers from places that you visit at 2 a.m. Although, Emily... good for the uh, social media media photo. I venture a guess that perhaps your car will not be as littered with as, as many fast food wrappers as mine is on a typical game night. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've been trying to wellness Emily in the 2019 playoffs. <laughs> New Greg, year, new Greg, I was wellness Greg for a bit and then, and then, and then things got out of hand when I realized that there were so many white castles in Columbus. All right. Coming up on the show, Mike Rupp of NHL Network and Bomani Jones of High Noon, our good friend from ESPN within the family. Uh, all that and more on ESPN and Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey everybody, it's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And uh, let's get right to it. I mean, the playoffs have been uh, crazy, unbelievably sick, awesome, and continue to be. Uh, we, we're taping the show on Wednesday. It is the day after the both the Blue Jackets and the Sharks took 2-1 series leads. You were in Columbus. You witnessed the Bob show. Um, what are your thoughts on the series right now insofar as how far it'll go or how long it'll go and, and who will end up winning it? My biggest takeaway from Tuesday night's Game 3 was that the Blue Jackets looked like a team that had legs. Like they had energy, like they were forechecking and blocking shots and their zone entries were crisp. And the Blue Jack, the Blue Bruins, whatever team they were playing just looked dog tired. They couldn't even remember their name because I can because I'm tired too. But, uh, yeah, it, it just seems to me like, you know, a hallmark of John Tortorella's teams are clogging lanes and blocking shots and they're doing all of those things in front of Bob, who's playing out of his mind. They're getting the right offensive touches. They're not going to score a ton of goals, but they can score goals. And the Bruins just look a little bit uh, fatigued after that seven-game taxing series against the Leafs. So um, my takeaway here is, as we record this, uh, momentum and the pendulum is swinging towards the Blue Jackets. I still can't believe Bobrovsky. I mean, there have been some <clears throat> really wacky things that have happened in these playoffs. Uh, look no further than the... <laughs> Carolina Hurricanes and what they're doing in the other part of the Eastern Conference bracket. But Sergei Bobrovsky coming into these playoffs, okay, he was going to be the guy who was the liability. The, the Blue Jackets had a lot going for them. They had Panarin, they had Duchesne, they had uh, a good amount of forward depth, they had Seth Jones. He was the guy 
with five wins in 20 postseason starts and an 891 save percentage. It was to the point where people were saying he wouldn't earn the kind of money he should earn for having been as successful in the regular season as he's been because he was so crappy in the postseason. And now he's the dude with uh six wins in seven games and a 937 save percentage in these playoffs. There are other goalies playing well. <clears throat> I would argue that no one has been as valuable to his team outside of maybe Peter Mrazek uh, than Bobrovsky has been to the Blue Jackets. He has been astounding. And that third period against the Bruins in game three was like a calling card. That He was so good and so poised and yet so athletic and all over the place. Um, it was really, really something to see. And, and it made you wonder exactly what the Bruins can do in this series, in their words, to get to him or to break him, I think was the term that they used. Do you think the Bruins can break Bob in this series? They're probably going to break some bones because I think the Blue Jackets are going to try to block a million gajillion shots in front of them. Uh, honestly, when he's this locked in, you know, I was talking to guys in the locker room today. This is as locked in as they've ever seen him. And Nick Foligno said something interesting, and he didn't want to make too big of a deal of it, but he said... He's having fun and he feels lighter and he's making jokes. And in years past in playoff runs, and look, the playoff runs have not been long. Uh, they've been quite short, but I don't know if that was necessarily there. Yeah, exactly. But Broski has been such a huge part of this Columbus Blue Jackets success. And our friend Vince Massey uh, helped explain why. Hey, Emily and Greg, it's Vince Massey here from ESPN Stats and Information. Uh, Sergey Bobrovsky, you know, everything, this is going to be about save percentage and you know, he struggled a lot in the playoffs before this season. From 2011 to 2018, Bobrovsky allowed at least three goals in 79% of his postseason appearances. That was by far the highest percentage of any goalie with at least 10 playoff games in that span. But somehow, some way, this postseason, everything has changed. In round one, he posted a save percentage of 932 against the Lightning. During the regular season, teams posted an 878 save percentage against the Lightning. And now here in the second round, that's been even better. A 9.43 save percentage against the Bruins. And really the big difference for Bob in the playoffs compared to the regular season has been the ability to stop the medium danger shots. According to the great website Natural Stat Trick, Bobrovsky, he ranked 34th during the regular season in medium danger save percentage at 8.92. In the playoffs, that's increased to .942. And remember, he's an unrestricted free agent this offseason. Vince Massey here from ESPN Stats. And information. The other game the, last night, Sharks, uh, 4-2 of the Avalanche. Now, I've been on this series, and uh, i got to tell you, that was a stunner. Absolute stunner. The Avalanche had turned the tide in that game for the better part of about 15 to maybe 20 minutes. And Matt Nieto's goal in the third period felt like an eventuality. It, it felt inevitable. It felt like it was obvious that the Colorado Avalanche were going to rally to tie the game. And then a weird thing happened in a postseason of weird things in a place where there uh, are oxygen issues for every team that comes into play. The Sharks got a second wind. And for the next minute and change, they played great hockey and they were coming at the avalanche. It was like all of a sudden they woke up and and the, the, the ice tilted the other way. And Logan Couture scores uh, 65 seconds after the avalanche tied the game to give the Sharks the lead. And they wouldn't give it up. I was, I thought the Sharks were done. I thought they were cooked. I thought they were going to be turned upside down on a hook and a, a license plates falling out of their mouth. I thought they were dead. I love what you back. wrote. I love what you wrote on Twitter. 
uh, how many of the Nathan McKinnon hype pieces did Logan Couture consume before the game? Probably all of them. Oh was- my God. As, as many of you know, I consider Logan Couture to be the Salieri to Sidney Crosby's Mozart. An incredibly talented player, but will never be the guy. And he's kind of surly about that. And yeah. all this guy had to do for the last 48 hours before game three was read Valentine after Valentine after Val- Nathan McKinnon, Nathan McKinnon. And McKinnon's line pl- outplayed them in game two. There's a story on The Athletic from Pierre Lebrun, co-written probably by Pat Brisson, uh, where he's talking to uh, Sidney Crosby and Patrick Kane and Connor McDavid about Nathan McKinnon. And, and, and Couture is sitting on the sideline. He's consuming all this and he says, I'm going to smoke this guy tonight. So McKinnon <laughs> got his goal. Couture gets the hat trick going head to head with the McKinnon line and the Sharks win game three of that series. I was super impressed with that, that victory. That was one where I, you know, if, if I was making like an in game wager, there's no way in the hell I would have up out of the Sharks at that point in the game. And yet they pulled it out. So then in their series that goes on, and these games are tonight as we do the podcast, uh, the Hurricanes and the Islanders, the Canes are up 2 nothing. Curtis McElhaney gets the start in game three with Mrazek Hurt. Uh, McElhaney's played really well. And I'm not entirely convinced that the Islanders are going to find a way to reverse course and take two from the Hurricanes on their home ice, being that the Hurricanes... Here's the thing about, about Carolina that's really interesting. Like, they're... I think it's 9-2 and two in their last 11 home games. And... During that stretch, it hasn't necessarily been overwhelming offense. They're defensively, they've been insanely good. They, I think they've only have a 1.33 goals against average in those wins. Um, so they've been locked in and playing the right kind of hockey in a home ice for a really long time. This is one of those series where you take a real look at it and you say to yourself, I don't know if there's a path back to victory for the Islanders unless it's Robin Lander deciding to say no in every single game that he plays. Um, and I feel like such a dummy for not having picked the Canes in the series because obviously it's going to be one of those things where you look back at it and it's a bunch of Islanders fans going, you know, if one and two were at Nassau, this would have never happened. I cannot wait for the Nassau takes. Uh, no, the Hurricanes have been absolutely impressive to me, and the reason is is that they won't die. They give every player in their lineup gets injured, and they just find some kid from Charlotte to plug in there, and it's okay. Um, and I think part of it is, as you alluded to, the defense is so strong. Uh, they have a surplus of capable defensemen, and that's really booing them. The goaltending has been great, and like you said, yes, Mrazek's out, but I don't think it's going to be a huge drop-off. And it's just next-man-up mentality that's so cliche but is so working for them. Um, they've got all momentum on their side. And uh, then we go to the St. Louis-Dallas series, and I'm going to read you a quick list here, okay? Mm. Jaden Schwartz, Vladimir Tarasenko, Pat Maroon, Oscar Sundquist, David Perron, Tyler Bozak, Ryan O'Reilly, Robbie Fabry, Alexander Steen, Braden Shen, Colton Pareko, and Alex Pietrangelo. Those are a dozen players that all have at least a goal in these playoffs for the St. Louis Blues. My point being, there are certain teams like the Columbus Blue Jackets that have the DNA of a championship team. They've got the great defensemen. They've got mm-hmm. the, the the two dynamic elite offensive players leading their forward group. They've got the goalie stopping everything. And then there are other championship teams that look like the Blues, where <laughs> every single night there seems to be a different hero. Um, game-winning goals in the playoffs of the Blues. Jaden Schwartz is two, Pat Maroon, Tyler Bozak, Ryan O'Reilly, Vladimir Tarasenko. Not always syncing up exactly with, you know, who the determining factor of the player is in the games, but a good illustration that the, that the uh, wealth is being spread around, that different guys step up every night, and, uh, and it's, it's looking like the Blues 
um, are having that moment of, of uh, systematic depth that sometimes teams that advance deep in the playoffs have. Do you know what other teams having a moment? The team with Rupe Hints and Mira Heiskanen on it, the two Finnish superstars that can't be stopped. I'm honestly most impressed these playoffs by the Dallas Stars. They're the team I expected nothing of. I, even though they had a more favorable first round matchup than any of the other, maybe under wild card or lower seeds, uh, I really didn't even expect them to advance. And they've gotten secondary scoring from that second line, which has been absolutely terrific. Matt Zuccarello might be the best trade li- deadline acquisition. Honestly, I think everyone should take this, um, strategy where you get your trade de- deadline acquisition, play him for a period, sit him for the rest of the year, let him get like surgery or, or break his arm and have him nice and rested and motivated for the playoffs. It's perfect. Plus, I got good goaltending. I, I, if you're arguing that this Dallas series is going to go deep and that it's not in the bag for the Blues, I tend to agree. Except it's also in the bag for the Blues because I picked them. <laughs> I picked the Blues too. <laughs> they were my only win in the first round. Uh, uh, by the way, a great moment on the uh, ESPN editorial call this week when uh, Chris Peters stepped to the plate and said, yes, I am, in fact, the guy who got all of the series wrong in the first round. I at least got the Blues right. I don't know about you. I don't know how well you did, but uh, I uh, I at least got one right. You know what? I just haven't seen the full Vezina voting yet because I know Matt Murray got a vote in the <laughs> so I'm feeling okay. I'm going to die on that one. <laughs> All right, let's 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 pick up the thread on some of these series with our good friend Mike Rupp. All right, joining us now on the line is Mike Rupp, former NHLer. You can watch uh, Rupper on NHL Tonight on the NHL Network where he is part of a, an amazing collection of analysts doing great work every night, going uh, into details that uh, you don't really get anywhere else and given that uh, that professional perspective. Rapper, let's start with the, uh, the Columbus Boston series. Um, and, and specifically something that we were talking about earlier, the, uh, Marchand, uh, punch to the back of the head. Uh, a lot of people were outraged saying, considering the player, it should have been a suspension. A lot of people were saying it's a roughing penalty and nothing more. Where did you, uh, fall on that controversy? It, it was a two minute penalty. It's not a suspension. I don't believe so. It's not over egregious. Uh, it's dirty. 100% it's dirty. And, I didn't like the fact usually in our game you got to deal with consequences, whatever that may be. At times changed a little bit in the game, but when you give a guy a shot in the back of the head, I'm not a big fan of skating away before the guy can respond in the way he wants to. Uh, um, that, that's the first thing. The second part of it is, you know, I don't really know. It, I don't know what Bob is thinking because when you look at these things that he's done and games one and game three. The game one was the stick stomp on Cam Atkinson on the faceoff. Between that and then the the punch to the back of the head of Scott Harrington, there's no uh, th- there's no gray area. Those are penalties. They weren't mm-hmm. seen, so they weren't called. But now let's look at the time frame of both of those. The stomping of the stick happened in overtime. What would this Boston fan base think? Or more, and more importantly, the teammates. Uh, I would lose my mind on a teammate if he was putting his desires to be that kind of player above the team in overtime. I mean, for right. that, that he, his hands are tied. He has to call it. And, you know, how would that have gone over? I, I really don't think that these things are that far removed, although Nazem Kadri's a little more blatant, and it was seen, and there was a little more intent on that. But they're penalties, and you're hurting your team. And then you look even in this game, he already took a penalty, they got the game winner for the Blue Jackets. And then, there, what was it, about a minute left when this happens? And you're down by one. So 
there's a lot of what if there. You're kind of rolling the dice if you're Brad Marchand. And as a teammate, I wouldn't be down with that. And um, sure, he may escape both of them with a little crooked grin that he usually has. But if I'm in that organization, I'm thinking, hey, bud, you got to smarten up here. Like, we can't have that. And more importantly, when he's doing that, he's not being the world-class player that he is. I'm curious, you mentioned as a teammate you wouldn't be cool with that. Not to do LARPing or role-playing here, but let's just pretend you are on the Bruins. I mean, it's it's an interesting group there, right? It's a veteran leadership group. There's also like a mid-range veteran leadership group. Everyone has talked, the narrative going into the series is that Brad Marchand has turned a page. He's really a leader here. Like, how would you address him and be like, look, dude, like, you got to cut this out. We need you, but we also need you to play your game, and maybe that is getting into this headspace to get there. You know, I think it's a matter of, I mean, you're talking about two of the classiest guys that have ever played in the NHL, and Daniel Char and Chase Bergeron, and they're so well respected and renowned amongst guys who played with them, against them. I never played with Patrice Bergeron. I got nothing but respect for that guy, the way he carries himself as a leader, um, world-class, uh, off the ice and on the ice and, and all the way through. So that makes me think, what, has something been said over the over the couple of years? I would assume something's been said, but, you know, if you're in that position, I don't think it's anything. It's just like, hey, man, listen, it, you're a 100-point guy. How many? How many been in this league this year? That hundred point. I mean, you're the only hundred point guy in this in this series. We need we need you to go. We need you to go. Use that in another way. And if anything, I think it's just showing Columbus. If I'm John Tortorella and company, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, guys, Scott Harrington's fine. Don't worry about this. Don't even give any more attention. We've got them right where we want mm-hmm. them. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're thinking about this. They're frustrated. Just keep playing, keep turning your cheek. And, and that was, you know, that was one of the biggest things when Mike Sullivan took over in Pittsburgh in 2016 that he was preaching through and through down the stretch was turn the cheek and play hockey. Turn the cheek, play hockey. Because remember, the Pittsburgh Penguins were kind of their own enemy uh, before that, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang. You see Sidney Crosby fighting in the playoffs. And they started doing that. And then it started, once you don't get, once you're not showing that frustration, it's like, now all of a sudden you got the other team saying, "Well, hey, they're not really biting on this bait here, so uh, you know we might just have to play them straight up." And I think that that's what that's what you got to look for with Brad Marchand. I mean, he's way too valuable. I got nothing but respect for what he brings as a hockey player. He's so fun to watch. I just don't, I do, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't get the need for doing what he's doing. Great stuff, Rupper. Um, you had a great career in the NHL. Um, most fans probably remember you as a member of the 2005-06 Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, <laughs> what do you what do you think about this team and its DNA right now? I mean, the more you look at it, the more you squint, the more it kind of resembles that LA Kings team from a few years back with the goaltending, with the elite talent up front, with the defense that they play. It kind of feels like we all slept on the on on the notion of this team having the building blocks of a potential champion. You know what's funny, and I you you might know better than me. There was a few years ago, not the year. Not the year the Pens won the Cup. I feel like they played Columbus even before that, and it was a really tough series for the Penguins. And I remember, you know, covering the covering the Penguins. I, I obviously get to see a little more in depth with them, and and I got to see this Columbus team. And since John Tortorella has taken over, it's they have a culture, they have an identity. Uh, you can say what you want about Torts and how hard he is and this and that. You know what you're getting out of them, and they're going to play you hard uh, throughout the lineup. And they've got a deep, well-built team. Um, when you're looking at this team, maybe we haven't given them enough credit the last two years. I mean, the two teams that made them exit the playoffs both went on to win the Cup. So hmm. do we really know what they were the last two years? I mean, we're, 
we thought they were a really good team. Um, I remember working with uh, Scotty Stevens um, at NHL Network, and he picked, was it last year? Maybe even two years ago. He picked the Columbus to win the Cup. And, I mean, they've, they've been uh, a team that's just been teetering on that level of greatness here for a couple of years. Maybe we didn't see enough of them come playoff time because those great teams they played, the Penguins and the Capitals, beat them and knocked them out. So now this year you're looking at it, and we all know about the well-documented doubling down with their UFAs, going and, and picking up other other guys. Now they got star power. And I'm looking, you know, at this team, and I'm like, they got star power, and they've got a goalie that I'd say probably, I don't know, maybe 15 games left in the regular season. I was thinking to myself, what if Bob kind of handled this the right way? He's losing himself a lot of money. Like, maybe it would have been better if this stuff would have been taken care of. And or, You know what I mean? Like, it was just kind of, there was uncertainty. I mean, there was uncertainty for a little while there if Jonas Kopersalo would be starting. And then when yeah. they went and they traded uh, uh, for Keith Kincaid, it was like, whoa, was Bob on the move? I mean, there were some question marks. Now, this guy's all world. He is unbelievable. He's he, the, the expressions on his face. He's having fun playing the game, and he's dominating. I mean, he is. That's what makes this so intriguing to me. Is they not only they, of all the teams remaining in the playoffs, that team has the most identity. They're probably not up there with star power, but they're in the top three star power teams left. And they've got the best goalie that's left in the playoffs. So I don't know. I don't know where, where or if they're going to stop. Uh, last one for me, Rupper. You mentioned the Penguins before, and there has obviously been a lot of discussion this week about where uh, their next steps might be, uh, and a lot of smoke around the idea of trying to convince uh, Yevgeny Malkin or having Malkin be convinced to waive his no-move clause and uh, head elsewhere. Do you, do you think that that would be... Uh, a, a positive move for the franchise at this point, given Malkin's age, given their other needs, or do you think that it is uh, better for the Penguins to keep this core intact as long as they possibly can and build around them? They have to alleviate some salary. There's Phil Kessel that's come up. I believe that they've been probably or that they've been looking to move him even this past season and haven't been able to do that. So I don't know if that's going to be continuing. Another one I don't think that they should part ways with is Chris Letang. I just hmm. again I just don't think. He had a very off playoffs, to say the least. But you're talking about a player of healthy this year. I think he'd be in the Norris talk. And if you have Sid, Gino, and a Norris caliber defenseman, that's a pretty darn good start. So they got to free up money. they got to find other ways. One luxury they have is if they could free up cash, it's not like when you go into free agency, you're not some places it's tough to land that big fish. And... You have to sometimes overpay to get those guys. Pittsburgh's still that spot where they're considered a contender, and if they need a top-end winger, uh, you might be able to get one on a discount. That a guy that's just motivated to, to have a couple deep, you know, cup runs and play with Sid or Gino. And uh, so I think it is, they just have to move a couple pieces around. But I don't. I think you you look at everything. That's a GM's job. So maybe they're looking at things with Gino. But I think the best move is to keep him and. Uh, and the core that I want to see still together is Sid Gino and, and Chris Letang. Good stuff, man. Hey, listen, he's the best. Check him out and all the other great analysts on uh, the NHL network uh, as they break down the playoffs. It's, 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 if you're not watching, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but NHL Tonight is the show. Uh, Mike Rupp, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Anytime, guys. Uh, enjoy the rest of the playoffs, and we'll chat soon. Our thank you to Mike Rupp and NHL Network. And it was just, Greg, to me, so interesting listening to talk about the Penguins because they've done it before, and they're trying to do it again. 
And how do you do that? And you know, I've done this before and I'm trying to do it again. And it's your official get your gift alert. <laughs> Mother's Day is Sunday, May 12th, everybody. Greg, are you listening? It's yeah, that reminder to get you a little anxious because you don't know what to get the moms in your life. Well, join the club. Luckily, Edible.com has got you covered. Edible arrangements can make anything from chocolate dipped strawberry boxes all the way to handcrafted fruit arrangements. They're delicious, easy to share, and they bring people together. Not to mention, Edible only uses high-quality ingredients. So no matter what you get, it'll be made with the freshest fruit available and dipped in rich, indulgent chocolate. With Mother's Day-themed arrangements and fruit boxes, it'll be a gift to remember. Again, it's on Sunday, May 12th. Don't get caught scrambling for a gift last minute. Order your gift online at edible.com and have it delivered. Or stop by a store for same-day pickup. It's that easy. And Greg, I wish everything in life was that easy. And you know what's not easy? Coming up with transitions, but I don't know what segment's next. So why don't you tell me what we're going to talk about? <laughs> Damn, you had it. I had Greg, it. you I know had it's it. not. You know what else isn't easy? Voting for the NHL awards. Damn oh. it! Oh, it was right in front of you. Right in mm. front of you. Mm. Missed up. That's all right. Your, your your previous transition was was a stuff of legend. Um, real briefly on the NHL awards uh, voting, uh, I don't remember where we left off last time we talked about them, but. Uh, Norris Trophy burns Giordano Hedman. I was a little bit surprised by Victor Hedman. I don't know about you. I think we did talk about this on last uh, week's podcast. And yeah, I think I was. Uh, honestly, I had Ryan McDonough in my top five. And I, I, I honestly think that you can make an argument that he might have been the better defenseman on that team for large parts of this year. We did not talk about the Calder, I don't think, uh, which no. ended, ended up being uh, Elias Pettersson, Jordan Bennington, and Rasmus Dahlin instead of Mira Heiskanen, which has been a tough look because he's been so damn good in the playoffs for the Dallas Stars. It's one of those deals where you're like, well, why don't they expand the voting to the playoffs uh, because he's been so good. I, I had him ahead of Dahlin on my ballot. I've been told by, um, let's see, everybody in Buffalo how wrong I am. Um, but I think that he, the quality of competition – uh, deployment and uh, playing the minutes he played from October through April, I think that he had the better season than Dalene. I know there's a sort of a curve you can grade on because Dalene's younger, uh, but but Miro for me was the the guy who should have gotten that extra spot in the uh, in the Calder with Bennington and and Patterson. My favorite thing ever was that quote that went viral on Twitter where he's like, "It's fine, I don't care. I'm just having fun playing in the playoffs." And everyone just assumed that he was throwing so much shade to the other uh, finalists who were not <laughs> yeah. in the playoffs. And I'm like, nah, I think it was just a hockey quote by a guy whose English is a second language. Like, I don't know if that was shade to anyone. No, it wasn't, I don't think it was. Uh, the Selkie was the other one of the other ones that kind of bugged me. Uh, I forget we talked about this or not, but O'Reilly, Stone, and Patrice Bergeron. And I think Bergeron had the number of games. Second year running, I didn't think he played the number of games. Uh, the, I had these two and then Crosby uh, as my third guy on my ballot. Um, I but Crosby I think in my top five. Yeah, I think I think in Sid's case, it's like it's it's hard for people to wrap their brains around the idea of him being an elite defensive player, uh, and the default setting is obviously Patrice Bergeron. But I'll be interested to see on the ballots exactly how many people had Bergeron, maybe even number one on this. My 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 my, uh, my plank my platform right now, and the plank on that platform is Mark Stone. I hope he wins. I think he probably will. And then finally, the giant cluster F of, of an award every single year, and and this year is no different. Connor McDavid. You could make the argument, deserve this award more last year than this year. Last year, he finished a country mile ahead of Leon Dreisaitl on the team in uh, points. And this year, he finished a handful of points ahead of Dreisaitl, who had 50 goals. Uh, he makes the cut for the top three this year, despite being 
way out of the playoffs. Uh, only I think the sixth guy, or or maybe the seventh guy in the history of the Hart Trophy, to get a fine a a, a a nomination or a top five finish, even despite not being in the playoffs. Crosby, Kucherov, the other two, Kucherov, we expect would win. Were you surprised to see McDavid in the top three, or are you a secret McDavid voter on this very podcast, knowing where I stand on it? You know what? I'm a secret McDavid voter in that I think I had him in my top five, but I had another player who didn't make the playoffs in my top five, and that's Patrick Kane. And I think yeah. that Patrick Kane was wholly more deserving this year than Connor McDavid for the aforementioned reasons. Um, but yeah, it, it's weird to me. I almost feel, and by almost, I mean, I definitely feel that this is all about narratives and it's what is the narrative at the time people are voting. And at the time people were voting, it was like, Oh, poor Connor. He's dealing with so much dysfunction. He had such a great season. He's never going to make make it with the Oilers as their current state. And Patrick Kane trailed off a little bit at the end of the year. And I almost wonder if that's what propelled him to the top three. Emily, are you saying that Connor McDavid got into the top three on a pity vote? A recency bias pity vote. <laughs> the the Kane thing is interesting because I said the same thing. I said that if you were going to pick somebody who finished out of the playoffs that carried their team, Kane would probably be the guy this year. And I got this massive pushback from Oilers fans saying, but look at the look at the rest of the Blackhawks roster and how good of the good players he played with, with Taves and and uh, to bring it. it's the quietest forty goal scorer in the league besides Jake Gensel, the quietest forty goal scorer in the league. And Strom and, and they pointed to other people. I, I mean I don't necessarily disagree that that the Blackhawks had a better roster than the Oilers, but I mean I, I think You see their defense? Yeah, and, and, and for a while, it just, it just felt like Kane was the thing that was keeping them relevant. But and again, by what both, it felt like that is when he was averaging two points a game for a yeah. very long stretch. But in both cases, who cares? Like at the end of the day, you know, both players accomplish one thing, which was hurting their team's draft position. That's all he did. That's why, that's why Patrick I leave all these guys the... off my ballot because value is inherent to making the playoffs in this league. That's when you know what a season is valuable. And a contribution to that is is valuable. I've spelled this out a million times. You can go back and read the column from last year about McDavid. Um, I, I just the, – the, the, you can't divorce the team contextually from the award. It's in the award. It's valued to his team. The team's performance, the team's position, the team's lot in life, their wants and needs from that player, it's inherent to the award. So – if you don't make the playoffs, you're not on my ballot. You know who was on my ballot? Ryan O'Reilly. You know, he didn't make the, t- the cut for the top three, Ryan O'Reilly. I think that's a shame. But uh, I was also willing to entertain Marchand, uh, and I was also willing to entertain uh, uh, Ovechkin, who also filled out my ballot. But, uh, yeah, Connor McDavid. Well, it'll be good to see him in Vegas. He's always good to talk to. We now welcome in an incredibly talented ESPN personality, Bomani Jones. Now, Greg was in charge. He wanted to book you. And Bomani, I love your work. I love seeing you on TV. But I got to ask, where do you stand on hockey these days? What's your relationship with it? Are you a fan? Do you want to be more of a fan? Well, I just want to take your pulse first. Yeah, I would not go as far as to say that I am a fan. I am a, ooh, it's the playoffs. And I can tune in and I always enjoy uh, playoff hockey when it comes around. I was also once the most hated man of a fan base in a market that I lived in, which was a very interesting uh, time period. <laughs> you, you can't just pause uh, there. You, you got to keep going. Oh, yeah. No, it'll come up as we talk about this. You know, they, you know now they got the, what, what are they, the bunch of jerks? Is that what they call themselves? <laughs> they are. And you were the bunch of jerk first. Well, what happened? The singular jerk. <laughs> you know, I was working for uh, page two at ESPN.com at the time, and I wrote a story that basically said, I keep seeing all these caniacs on the news, but how come I don't know none in real life? 
and I would go out to various places in town to try to meet some people watching the game, and they wouldn't be watching the game. But I saw the car flags. I knew they existed. I was just never around where they were. People don't like it when they feel like you're saying they're invisible. And so, like, on one level, it turned into, you know, people hate me, but on another level, it turned into a radio career. (laughs) What's interesting about that dynamic, and first of all, I guess the two questions. First off, do you think it's changed since the apex of your uh, your, your rivalry with Canes fans. Do you think that the fan base has expanded since then, or is it too soon to say just because success has been so fleeting? Well, I would assume that the fan base has expanded if for no other reason than the population of the area has expanded, and a lot of it is like northern transplant. So I would I would assume, you know, I've moved away from that about six years ago. I would definitely assume that the fan base has expanded, and that franchise has that weird history where they only go into the playoffs if they're going to go to the Stanley Cup finals or get reasonably close to it. <laughs> right? That's the only time if they're going to make it, they're going to go pretty deep. So at times like these, they can take over the city. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess it's, the other thing that happened there is that's more of a Raleigh thing. And I lived in Durham and those are two completely mm. different places in ways that I can't possibly explain. <laughs> but uh, no, I think I would definitely say, though, that the fan base has, in fact, expanded. And the other thing is that, and this is a sport, a general sports question, and I found this to be true with, with Islanders fans, I found it to be true with, with Blue Jackets fans, and I find it to be true with, with Hurricanes fans. At some point in your maturation as a championship contender, you make the leap from being able to accept credit and not be salty about it, um, from being a, a, a fan that uh, feels like they never get credit. And, and I feel like Canes fans, some of them at least, are still in that place where even though we all say this accomplishment is great, you beat the Capitals, you're taking it to the Islanders, the whole thing, there's still that sort of intrinsic standoffishness about how the franchise has been treated for the last 20 years by a lot of people. And I wonder how you get over that. Is it just, I mean, when do you get want to grow out of that? Well, the question that I have as someone who doesn't deal in these circles as intensely as others is, like, do people still act like they don't deserve a team? Because I think that was the greatest cause of resentment, was that people acted like they did not deserve a team. Like, Raleigh is so much bigger than Hartford. You know, like, like it's not it's not as though this team moved out of Brooklyn and then just magically <laughs> showed up in Greensboro, North Carolina, right? Like, that's, that's not what great. it was. And so, especially, like, when they went to the Cup Finals in 06 and won it, I got a lot of calls from, like, Canadian stations after I'd written that piece. And they really just – it just seems very clear to them that they felt like this wasn't an area that deserved a team. And so, in this, like, with the Canes, they're like the diehards that always want to tell you that they go back to Greensboro. Like, that's your, that's your line of demarcation is that I go back to Greensboro. And, and so you had those people. But then generally they just kind of felt like the hockey world looked at them as a market that had no business having a hockey team, except right. markets that have no business having a hockey team or keeping the lights on. Hmm. I, I think that's an interesting point because I feel like we have this conversation so many times in the NHL because there is so much relocation and unsustainability and maybe they're a bit too ambitious with their Sunbelt expansion. But in your mind, what criteria would you have for who deserves a team? Like, if you had to have like four pillars of of the things that a city needs to deserve an NHL team, what would they be? Man, can you keep the lights on? <laughs> right, like, like the, the dilemma that I think the NHL has is, at least as it relates to North America, this is primarily a Canadian. I mean, this is a Canadian sport. Like, the interest 
in Canada is, you know, like per capita, I guess, however you put it, is so much bigger than it is across the United States. The problem is Canada don't have enough people. It doesn't have enough cities that can truly sustain a team. And so what you wind up with is a nation that is rabid about a sport that it can't support. And so in order to have all the hockey teams they want to watch, you got to do something like put a hockey team in, say, Nashville, right? And then they look at it like, well, we would love that team a whole lot more. Yeah, that's fine. But the judge says you can't pay the rent. This baby needs food. This baby needs a roof. This baby needs all these things that make a baby grow up into a grown-up. And the places where the interest is most is highest, they can't do it. So, hey, man, if you can keep on the lights and go ahead and do it. Like, I've been fascinated by the idea that I, I remember, I guess it's now like 25 years ago, uh, Houston, they, they revived the Arrows, right? They, and I don't mm-hmm. even know if the team is still playing, but they got a, uh, a minor league hockey affiliate in Houston. This is the top 10 American markets, the fourth largest city in America. They're not putting a team in Houston. Mm. They should. <laughs> it pretty might. well there. Um, I, I wonder, let me tell you why I, I think it could do well. And one thing that I found talking to people in Raleigh is that once people realize how much hitting happened in hockey, like not even <laughs> just the punching people in the face, but like actual hitting, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm game. Tell me more. Yeah. I, I, I can halfway get into this. It's a sport that, tra- that translates well, I think, into, the, into certain markets, no, no doubt, um, and because of the intrinsic violence in the game. Um, <clears throat> you, uh, you spent some time in Toronto. Uh, in the Toronto media, for the most part, kind of. The Leafs uh, were, have been uh, thwarted by Boston in consecutive Game 7s in the postseason. The psychology of the Leafs fan has always been very interesting to me. I, I think that they should be kind of the Chicago Cubs of hockey, where we're all waiting around hoping that they can break this decades-long schneid they've been on. But at the same time, it seems like the totality of Canada and the hockey world is quite happy with the Maple Leafs being as frustratedly bad as they are yeah like I, I, the the raptors use their slogan we the north and i feel like the leafs use their slogan we the knicks <laughs> like they, they, they exist in that space right so the last championship was what 1964 65 67 or something like that yeah, yeah there, there, there's no reason there's no good reason why they are not better right like and you this is the kind of thing you say about like colleges but you really look at it like you're in Toronto. The interest is so high. You got money behind you, right? You're not even like dependent on a person making these financial decisions. Like all, you know, like all of these things. Why are you not better? And it contributes to something that I think in America they don't understand, which is how angry Toronto sports fans can be. Mm-hmm. And I think of Canadians are so nice and polite. Yeah, they got like, like somehow they misunderstand these Canadians that are punching each other. These hockey players, the Canadians punch each other in the face. But you think the Canadians are so nice, man. Toronto is ready, especially since it fancies itself as a major city on par with the major cities of the United States. They want one. They want it bad. And, I mean, are they really even close? I think they're close. They got some players. I think the interesting thing, though, that happened this off season, this, uh, this playoff season, though, is uh, there seems to be much more investment uh, in Leafs fans and the idea that they were struck by the Drake curse. Uh, do you believe in the supernatural Drake curse amongst all sports platforms? I think that what one could argue about the Drake curse is similar to like the SI curse or the Madden curse, which is a certain measure of regression to the mean. So basically, Drake doesn't show up until you start doing well. So chances are there's only talent to go from there anyway. You know, I also feel like sense. people feeling like the Drake curse has happened tells you just how much, shall we say, all of Toronto embraces their native son. They'd be happy as hell to see Drake when he comes to see the Raptors, even if they even if they lose in his presence, right? 
They gonna blame. So just they have on stay in with a cup in fifty two years. They gonna blame this on Drake. Oh come on, people. We can do better. I'm curious about your take, though, just living in Toronto. Um, often we joke about the Toronto media and Canadian media just because there's a higher concentration of hockey writers that live in Toronto than anywhere else. And, and they kind of become a punching bag for us. What were your observations of Toronto media and how does it compare to some other you know, media groups that here in the U.S.? So I did not live in Toronto. I ah. managed to work in Toronto while living in the States. The thing the, sounds like some kind of tax uh, evasion. <laughs> I can see why you would make that argument, Greg. Did you? Um, but I would make the I would I would make the argument, or at least from what I could tell with the hockey media. You guys tell me if this is kind of in line with what you got. I feel like you're way too nice or way too mean. There doesn't seem to be that much in between. Hmm. No nuance. Well, and not even a matter of nuance. It's just it's just kind of, I don't know. That, that is kind of that that could, that I'm, I'm struggling to explain it, which means I probably. Um, should not have said it in the first place. But I also think the hockey media, unlike the media covering the major sports here, feels far more protective of their game than the people here. Like, I find that the NFL media is protective of the NA, of the NFL. Uh, the hockey media, I think that they're generally kinder to players than the media is in other sports. And I think that in, all over the place when you talk about hockey, People joke about it, the please like my sport guy. And that guy is really annoying, but, man, a lot of those guys <laughs> like to watch hockey. And then when you try to like it, they lecture you. No, the relationship with the players is an interesting thing you brought up. You know, I used to cover the NFL, and you're right. I think people in football and in basketball are much more comfortable being critical of players. And in hockey, maybe it's just a little too chummy. Maybe it's because the players don't show enough of their personality that we feel uncomfortable getting to that space. But – Really, there's not that kind of tension or friction or even just criticism that exists in other sports. And you don't have that big old cultural gap either. Yeah. Um, and I think That's that that contributes big to the chumminess. Yeah, yeah, like that, that, that contributes to the chumminess. Like one thing, I was talking to somebody about this with the NBA, and you think like white NBA players who have had poor relationships with the media, because we get lots of white baseball players, for example, the Ted Williams of the world who have poor relationships with the media. Like if you are player and you can't good media treatment man you must be a jerk like rick barry holy smokes to be that good and be in the space that he's in man people must really 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 not like you but it can be easier for the media to get chummy with the guys that they would probably talk to in their own regular lives which isn't mm -hmm. often the case or I, I wouldn't say often it isn't always the case in the three other sports in the states well last one for us here and thanks for your time do you think that the legalization of sports gambling could help increase any, the NHL's profile in the U.S.? Because that's really what we're kind of pinning all of our hopes on. Or do you think that people just don't want to bet on hockey? Oh, wow. I thought you were going to talk about the legalization of marijuana, which is basically, you know, the NHL's drug policy, the legalization of everything. We'll just call you up after and be like, hey, I heard you flunked the test. You good? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just checking. Um, but the, the legalization of sports gambling – I think that it can certainly help with interest in the United States. And not to sound like a company man here, but everything changed when the NHL went on to ESPN and it changed when it went off of ESPN. Like, I remember for me, the first hockey game that I really, really, like, watched and paid attention to, 
I was 13. It was when the Rangers uh, won the Cup. There was a lot of NHL coverage on ESPN at the time, and you had a Game 7. And it was the first time, obviously, that I had ever seen one of those, uh, like the post-Cup celebration where everybody gets to hold the cup and we pass it around. And, of course, that's one of the worst ones to have is your first because they'd only been waiting for that for 54 years. Um, (laughs) But I was enthralled, like, by all of it. I found it to be totally fascinating. And so when you get to the middle of that decade, you got the avalanche and the Red Wings and all of that stuff, I was inclined to watch all of those things. Like my buddy Shannon, uh, who produced my radio show and produces Freddie Coleman's show now, like, he was a real – in Hampton, Virginia, was a legit hockey fan. Um it's a little harder when you got to go find it on the NBC Sports Network. Um, and I think that if they were in places that people went, like, accidentally, like places that people are just going to be anyway, you'll stop and you'll watch and you'll get it. I do think also one thing that may help in the States is I don't think that people properly understand the spectacular level of athleticism that is present in an NHL game. Like, I don't think people understand how big those dudes are. Like, the idea to me that Zidane Chara is six foot nine and he's out here on skates, man. That's like something out of a horror movie. I think that people who don't, like, fully watch the sport, if they appreciated that, I do wonder, like, how much that could help in terms of getting into it. And I think the last thing would be, I think it takes 30 years to build a fan base. Um, like, if you remember when the Arizona Cardinals moved to Phoenix and they would play division games against the Cowboys and they were all road games because the Cowboys are the most popular team in any city that doesn't have a team, that doesn't happen when the Cowboys come to town anymore because it took them about 30 years and then they built up a legitimate fan base. What happens after in some of these newer cities that are newer to having teams, like we're getting to that place in Dallas. Dallas, I think we're winning at about 25, 26, 27 years of that team being there. Once you have a generation that always grew up with a hockey team being in place, I wonder how much that will help. Yeah. Or you're Vegas and you're just born into it. <laughs> no, that still remains the crazy. I I never thought that what they had happen in Vegas was possible. Like I have all yeah. kinds of skepticism about how it's going to go when the Raiders are there because I think the Raiders are just going to play a bunch of road games because people's going to fly in because their team is playing in Vegas. But, man, they dropped that hockey team off in Vegas, and they were like, all right, something of our own. We're going to do this. And they really got into it. And yeah. you, know, you know what? Maybe it's a gambling. I don't know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Bamani Jones, you could catch him on High Noon with Pablo Torre. You could catch him as the host of The Right Time with Bamani Jones uh, on the audio side. Dude, you're the best. And it was great having you on the podcast, finally. All right, man. Take it easy. All right. Thanks to ESPN's own Bamani Jones for joining us here on the podcast. And now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Bill Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's the weekly look at the hyperbole and the uh, general nonsense that comes from the hockey media on a weekly basis. But this time, Emily, we're branching out into the world of golf. Shane Ryan is a GolfDigest.com contributor, as you all know. And he wrote a story called, Could Hockey Ever Be Cool Again in America? Quote, There's nothing wrong with hockey entering a new stage as a strong niche sport that remains popular in the Northeast and Midwest. I'm sorry, entering a new stage? Uh, And it's still a huge deal in Canada and Russia and other cold weather nations. Um, The NHL is in no danger of folding. That's a relief. And hockey fans will probably react to the story with annoyance. Guilty. Uh, They don't need to, uh, they don't need to be quote unquote cool 
But for those outsiders who don't already love the sport, particularly for those who, like me, loved it once and lost our way, that's on you, buddy. It's hard to imagine what could reignite that flame and win us back. I'm guessing cash payments. Uh, for the broader American sports zeitgeist, hockey looks like a sport that is doomed to recede in perpetuity. My first question is, I, I had no idea Golf Digest recycled stories from 1998. That's pretty impressive. I think that's impressive that they resurfaced this one. It seemed like it had some juice to it. Second of all, what a, what a weird flex in 2019 at a point where the ratings are up. Um, hockey is clearly no longer just a regional sport. Uh, see the, the thriving uh, markets in places as disparate as San Jose and Las Vegas. Um, and uh, and uh, a time when can hockey be cool again? I Again, I'm speaking from a point of complete homerism here, but... I would argue that the, the game is in a better place now than it's been in decades at this point, as far as the quality of play, the um, amount of fans watching that quality play, and the galaxy of stars with with whom the uh, the NHL can market the game. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. I'm just curious. You're the one that dug this up. Was there an impetus for this, or did he just want to write a little bit that had zeitgeist in it? Well, I imagine as a as a golf fan, um, if Tiger Woods isn't playing in a tournament, you have absolutely nothing else to do. So I imagine he took some time out of his busy schedule to uh, to write about hockey. He's a lapsed fan. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the NHL could do for you if you're you weren't a fan. Or you were a fan, then weren't a fan. Like, unless you were a fan of a very specific brand of hockey that doesn't exist anymore, where people just punch each other all the time, um, this is like the most entertaining product the NHL's managed to bumble into putting on uh, in decades. So I don't, I don't know what else they need to do for you. Oh, Shane. He's yeah. hopeless. All right, now it's time for uh, Puck Headlines. Dateline Buffalo. Uh, according to reports, Dave Tippett has interviewed with the Buffalo Sabres for their coaching vacancy. Uh, so why interview anyone else, Emily? <laughs> like, why isn't this guy just your coach? I don't know. It's clear they want someone with experience. Uh, you know, the other rumor is that they were so impressed by their AHL team getting swept by the Marlies and now they want to hire Sheldon Keefe, uh, who is the coach of the Marlies. But honestly, this surprised me a bit just because when I met with Dave Tippett in January, he seemed to really be enjoying semi-retired life kind of in the front office going on little scouting expeditions for the Seattle team. I asked him point blank, do you have any interest in coaching the Seattle team? He goes, absolutely not. So, mm. you know, it just gets itchier and you just, you got to scratch it. So yeah, they got to hire him. Maybe he doesn't think the Seattle team is going to be all that good and doesn't want to be the guy who coaches a bad expansion team. Uh, well, him and say? Shane Ryan can do an as told to. <laughs> Sounds like a good hot take. Dateline, New York. The New York Rangers have acquired Adam Fox from the Carolina Hurricanes in exchange for what we assume will be two second-round picks. I got to hand it to Carolina for getting a decent return on a guy who was never, ever, 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 ever going to suit up for their franchise. Um, and for the Rangers, the question then becomes, is this kid going to be a foundational piece of their blue line or a Jimmy VC 2.0? Yeah. <laughs> I love that Jimmy VC now is old enough to have a 2.0. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> kudos totally to the uh, Carolina Hurricanes. Look, they were operating with zero leverage and got a ton out of it. And look, we're going to see this kid at the World Championships, according to our Chris Peters. So I'm excited to see what he can do there. And is he legit? And is he going to win 
uh, not only the Calder, but the Con Smythe for years in perpetuity, according to our own Rangers expert, editor Ben Arledge. Another another uh, wacky twist in the uh, Noah Hannafin Dougie Hamilton trade, in which at one point the uh, Hurricanes looked like they won they won the trade, and then all of a sudden it looked like the Flames might win the trade, and then the Hurricanes advanced past the Flames to the playoffs. And now the Hurricanes look like they win the trade, and now Adam Fox definitely isn't going to play with them, but they got two uh, second round draft picks if he does play at least I think thirty games. I'll still chalk this up as a win for uh, Don Waddell and Eric Tolsky and the uh, Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, Dateline: Brandon Dubinsky. All right. First, he trolls the city of Boston by saying that Columbus was going to have the louder arena. Emily, your take was was Columbus the louder arena? You know, everyone keeps asking me that. I've been around a lot of arenas in the last two playoffs. Everywhere's pretty loud. <laughs> I agree. Pretty loud. It, it is. I mean, it was get off the my lou- lawn. The loudest I've ever heard an arena, maybe ever, was Game Seven between the Sharks and and uh, and, and Vegas during that rally during the five minute major, because as someone pointed out, there were no moments when everybody got quieter. Like it was, it was sustained just sustained like, loudness. It, it, it was like four straight crescendos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had never heard a place louder than that. Um, but anyways, Dubinsky trolled Boston by saying that. And then he, and then he did his press availability wearing a Milwaukee Bucks hat, uh, who of course are the Boston Celtics opponent in the, in the, in the NBA playoffs Quote Dubinsky, I've got family from Milwaukee, so I went to a Milwaukee game not too long ago and picked up the hat, so I liked the hat. Emily, this is just nonsense, so you control more Boston fans. You, yes, but do you know who his father-in-law is? Al McGuire, no. who, uh, big Marquette guy, Milwaukee. It's legit. His wife's oh, yeah. from there, Brenna. Yeah. I, I don't think this is BS. I think this is master trolling. Mm. All right. There's your uh, wag trivia of the day. <laughs> now, what kind of, you buy, Emily. What kind of uh, bedazzled jacket and or hat does she wear at games? That's the real question, Emily. Mm, I will have to do a big deep dive into that. <laughs> Dateline. Dateline Springfield. In the episode titled Do Canada, <laughs> Lisa Simpson ends up in a Canadian hospital and a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police informs Lisa that she will have to stay in Canada for a while and be assigned a new hockey team. And this is what it sounded like. Lisa, as you're clearly a victim of political persecution who fears for her life, I must keep you in Canada where you'll be safe and assign your own hockey team. Please not Ottawa. Please not Ottawa. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. The Mountie takes out a senator's hat and plants it on Lisa's head while apologizing. Uh, hopefully she uh, made it out of the hospital okay. And wasn't harvested for more organs for Eugene Melnick. Dateline. As someone, I'm just have to say, as someone who has been around a lot of Canadians in the last couple of weeks covering the Toronto Maple Leaf series, excellent pronunciation of sorry. <laughs> Masterful. <laughs> All right, some sad news. Dateline Vancouver. Uh, Jason Botchford, a writer for The Athletic and a radio personality in Vancouver as well. Uh, his family released a statement on Wednesday morning announcing that the longtime Canucks beat writer had died at the age of 48 due to an apparent heart failure. He had a, at least behind a wife and three children. Uh, Botch and I, as many of you know, have had a, uh, contentious relationship through the years, but that's only because we both love sparring and Botch was really good at it. And, uh, like I said today, man, that guy was an original. That guy had a drive and an innovative spirit to him. Uh, that you rarely found in this business. 
and the ability for him to take what he did as a beat writer and mold it and shape it and transform it into something for the digital age with the Pravis and then the Athletes, uh deserves a lot of praise and a lot of attention um, because I can't think of another writer that was able to do it and do it in a way that also gained him uh, a, a massive uh, community of, of readers and fans following him and and participating in his reindeer games every day. It's it's really really um, sad to see him go and go so early and leave his family behind. Um, it's it sucks and uh, just props to to botch. Uh, you know, he made life interesting and and that's the best thing you can say for a writer. You really created a genre where he blended humor, analysis, and reporting. And those were must-reads for me. I remember the first time I was turned on to them when I started covering hockey and someone telling me, you got to read these after games. And they're hilarious. Um, so kudos to him. You know, we'll always remember, you know, the great legacy he left behind. And honestly, like you said, just original creative work, which in this day and age is so hard to find, especially in a sport like hockey. When it is what it is, that's what happened. Cliché, cliché, cliché. Yeah, our, our condolences to friends and family. Botch was, was one of a kind. Um all right, now it's time for the rant line. Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. So the Blue Jackets win in double overtime last night. And uh, instead of being able to enjoy this victory fully the way I wanted to, I'm hung up on the Mike Milbury thing. I just can't get over it. I don't know why I care. I know that it doesn't make sense for him to be on these broadcasts in the first place. Uh, but he doesn't give us credit for anything that we do. I mean, Sweet Tampa and Four, okay, the national you know, Canadian broadcast, whatever, they cover us, they give us our due, uh, you know, as being a, a somewhat talented team, yeah, there's a lot of, oh, look, the little blue jackets, you know, shock the world type thing, but, uh, you know, where's the respect? You know, just say good game, you earned it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's it's tough when your team doesn't necessarily get the credit. I mean, we did talk to Bamani about this earlier about when your the, the the team or the fan base matures to the point of not feeling that the world is against them and feeling that they are given proper credit in a series. I will say though, Emily, that the proper credit thing does become a little bit more problematic and challenging when you have a former Bruins employee on the broadcast and you feel as though perhaps he is uh, more interested in speaking about one side of the equation than the other. I have to say, when he started off by saying, let's talk about the Mike Milbury thing, I had no idea what thing he was talking about. Um, but look, <laughs> we appreciate the call. We appreciate the Columbus Blue Jackets, and we hope that we give them due credit for the awesome run that they're having. Indeed. Our thanks to Mike Rupp, our thanks to Bamani Jones, our thanks to you for listening to the podcast. Please do uh, head over to iTunes and rate and review uh, ESPN on Ice. It helps people find the show. And uh, thanks for all the support you give us. Uh, I'm Greg Wyshynski. You can find my stuff on Twitter, at Wyshynski, and uh, find my stuff on ESPN.com. ESPN.com. Emily M. Kaplan. Bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.